1: Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're gonna be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you gonna get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canadaland. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. (laughs) Alexandra Morton claims to be a biologist, but really, she's a discredited activist. She's probably British Columbia's loudest anti-salmon farm activist. And her rambling, conspiracy laden diatribes, her rants, her apocalyptic prophecies about the dangers of industrialized salmon farming are reminiscent of Donald Trump's desperate attempts to overturn the US election. And Alexander Morton, along with her foreign funded eco bully allies in a group that we'll call Salmon Anon, well, Alexander Morton is endangering 1,500 Canadian jobs and $460 million a year in economic output. Or that's what I read in the news, anyhow. Sea West News, specifically, a Canadian website that, quote, aims to shine a light on British Columbia's dynamic, sustainable, and healthy seafood industry. Goes on to describe itself, this website, seawestnews.com, as a website aided by a group of veteran journalists dedicated to bringing people together for, quote, a delicious discourse on sustainable fisheries. So you will know that the seafood on your plate has been responsibly harvested. Okay. Part of that checks out. Uh, there are veteran journalists behind SeaWestNews.com, and one of them is Fabian Dawson. He used to be an editor with the Vancouver Province Post Media paper, and he, he's still a, a reporter. He's actually a government-funded reporter for New Canadian Media. He is receiving funding under the Trudeau government's local journalism initiative for his work with them. But... Fabian Dawson also operates a PR company, Fabian Dawson Media, and he was the founding editor of Sea West News and the guy who wrote all of that nasty stuff about Alexandra Morton in article after article attacking her. So who is behind this Sea West News? There's actually no disclosure on the webpage about who funds it, none that we could find. And when we asked them about it, we didn't get an answer. But... Fabian Dawson's PR company, Fabian Dawson Media, does have a uh, disclosure of sorts, I suppose. The website does say that Fabian Dawson Media works to develop specific issue-related campaigns for organizations like the BC Salmon Farmers Association. And it seems very much like one of those campaigns is the campaign to discredit Alexandra Morton and to discredit her academic research her writing, her advocacy, and her legal actions against industrialized salmon farms. And that campaign isn't really working. Alexander Morton has been fighting the salmon wars for decades. Originally a whale biologist from California, she was shocked into activism when her research revealed the devastating results of industrialized salmon farming. Blood virus, sea lice, and massive clouds of uncontained fish shit that pollute B.C.'s open waters to the detriment of every other living thing around— wild salmon, sea lions, whales, bears, trees, and indigenous peoples who rely on wild salmon for sustenance and for revenue. Morton studies salmon farms, but she also fights them in court and on the internet. She has been intimidated by sea mounties, and she has been spied on and followed by armed operatives in boats with tinted windows— who, it turned out, worked for a company registered as Black Cube Strategies and Consulting Limited, and which was seemingly contracted by the giant Norwegian salmon company Marine Harvest, which has since rebranded itself as the uh, vaguely indigenous-sounding Maui. Alexander Morton has taken on the government, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, and she has exposed alarming influence from the salmon industry on an office that is supposed to protect oceans, not profits. Alexandra Morton has documented all of this in her book, Not On My Watch, which reads a lot more like a a gripping, page-turning, murder mystery spy thriller than as an eco-screed. Last week, she sat down to talk with me. Her fish stories are wild, and Alexandra Morton will tell them to you in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Michael Ranny, Chris Giro, Lawrence Zwer, Ryan Thomas, Kareem Gouda, Nick McPherson, Karen Mann, and Josh Smee. Hi, I'm Josh. I run a nonprofit in St. John's, Newfoundland, and I support Canada Land for a few reasons. Having a critical lens on our media scene is more
0: important than ever. Your shift to more original journalism is generating some great work, and you've introduced me to a lot of thoughtful voices from across the country. Thanks for doing what you're doing. In 1984, I found the perfect place to study the orca or killer whales year-round. I wanted to model my life after Dr. Jane Goodall and find a place to study these animals for the rest of my life. In particular, I was interested in their communication. Such a large-brained animal, and they talk so much, I thought that if I could decipher some of what they were saying, it would be a little bit of a peek into the intelligence of this creature. And so the whales led me into this Broughton Archipelago in October 1984. It was a rainy day, and I was there with my young husband and our little boy who was uh, three years old. And I really felt like I'd gone off the edge of the known world. There, There were so many islands and The the gray of the sky and the water kind of melded together. My husband and I lived on a boat, so we just went and got the boat, and we moved in and uh, made it our home.
1: A lot of kids, I think, dream of being marine biologists and dream of studying whales. I don't know how many kids dream of studying sea lice.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, all, all life forms are actually incredibly interesting. But what happened was, I had a few amazing years studying the whales in this wild place. And then the salmon farming industry moved in. And at first I thought it was a really good idea. I thought it would keep our little one room school open and bring more families to the tiny little float house community of Echo Bay. But very rapidly there were uh, issues. You know, the water changed color with algae blooms. We had Atlantic salmon in the rivers.
1: Can you describe a salmon farm?
0: Salmon farms are floating feedlots because they take an animal and they put it in as small a space as possible and they try to grow it as fast as possible. And so it's a, it's a long rectangle of floating aluminum walkways and these walkways are arranged so that there's these squares and in the squares nets are hung down in a kind of a cube shape some of the farms are also circular. It's a similar design. So they raise Atlantic salmon in hatcheries, and then they move them out by boats, and they pour them into these pens. And there might be a million of these Atlantic salmon in a farm. Now, the reason they're so dangerous is because they break the natural laws. Salmon are supposed to migrate, and salmon have all kinds of predators, you know, the orca, the birds, the eagles, the bears, the sea lions. And these predators serve to take out any sick fish, any fish that are contagious. But in the farm, the pathogens, the parasites, viruses and bacteria spread easily from fish to fish like they do in any kind of a feedlot. And then those sick fish remain contagious. And so you end up with really A super shedder event where you have literally billions, and people have done the math on this, billions of larval lice, but also viruses and, and bacteria streaming out of these pens into the currents. And the most dangerous thing is that these farms were allowed to go into prime wild salmon habitat because farm salmon need the same thing as wild salmon. And so they're on the migration route of our biggest rivers, virtually all the rivers in Southern British Columbia. And for a for young wild salmon, it's something like walking your child through an infectious disease ward in a hospital on her way to school. So the exposure happens, infection happens and that it gets passed on to the, the other fish that uh, the young salmon come in contact with. In 2001, a fishing lodge owner, who was a good friend, brought me two tiny little juvenile salmon, a little pink and a little chum. And they were covered with these little hair-like attachments. And this normally very cheerful man was angry. And he, he pushed the bucket into my hands with the two fish. And he said, are these sea lice? Because I have guests coming to my fishing lodge from Scotland who say that sea lice from salmon farms destroyed their wild salmon runs and that's why they're fishing with me here in British Columbia and these better not be sea lice well they were you know he he wanted me to figure this out and and so I started it as a favor to just kind of check this out and I contacted researchers in Norway and Scotland and and the scientists in Scotland were very outspoken they said can't you guys in Canada read we knew you were going to have this sea lice problem Because everywhere the salmon farming industry goes, these lice start breeding on the farm salmon and their populations explode and they kill off the juvenile wild salmon. So I collected samples and I sent them to the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and trying to alert them that this problem was spreading to our coast and that our fish were going to be damaged by it. And DFO just refused to do anything about it. They ignored me. They Ridiculed me. Uh, and so I opened my home out to other scientists, particularly graduates who are working on their PhDs or their masters, because I knew if it was just me studying this problem and trying to communicate this problem to the government, it wasn't going to work. So I opened my home to these remarkable people, and my home was dubbed Camp Sea Lice, <laughs> and these these uh, young scientists really pursued this issue. So I've published over 20 scientific papers in major journals. They have published maybe three times that amount. And it's very clear where you have salmon farms, the sea lice explode, and they eat the young wild salmon populations to death.
1: Every time you say sea lice, my skin crawls. I've seen these pictures of salmon like for sale in a supermarket with these things on them. These aren't actually bugs, though, are they?
0: No, they're actually a crustacean. They're a parasitic crustacean, so they're in the same family as crabs. And in the wild, they're benign. They just skitter around on top of the fish. They have a very difficult childhood, and so most of them don't grow up, don't find a fish. And they have a, a balance with the wild salmon. But as with really all feedlots, the balance has been destroyed. And now these things are, you know, overproducing in a place and time that they're infecting these little salmon that just aren't built to take it.
1: That sounds very disgusting.
0: It is. It it entirely is. And, And what's so frustrating is that it is not only having a devastating and catastrophic impact, but it is easily solved. There's a technical fix for this. Just build a solid wall. But of course, it's cheaper to let the tons of waste produced daily by these fish to just drop through the nets. And so, you know, the industry's getting a free flush. They're externalizing a major cost. It's making these farms very lucrative. But the environment and the public and the orca and everything that depends on wild salmon are paying the bill that the farmers don't want to pay.
1: That's it. It's, it's just a solid wall versus a net. And then the waste gets collected and then they just have to Bear the cost of dealing with the waste. and we're not talking about the farmed salmon and, and the effects on them and the disease. We're talking about just clouds of waste and disease and parasites into the rivers, into the into into the ocean, destroying the ecosystem. And if you just put up a wall, that would stop.
0: That's right. And because the ocean breaks everything, you might as well just put it in a tank on land and land-based salmon farming is taking off around the world. In fact, every time a company uh, proposes to build an operation, the investment in it is immediate, and, and many of them are over-invested. Norway, which is the mother country of this industry, and the big fish farmers that are operating British Columbia are, all have their head offices in Norway. They are pushing the industry into closed containment because they want the industry, and they're trying to protect it from itself. And so they see the future of salmon farming as as existing in tanks where you can regulate the temperature, you don't have storms, you don't have predators, you don't have disease transmission, you can regulate everything. But the thing about the waste, the waste is incredibly rich, of course. And so there are other farmers that are pioneering how to grow enormous plant crops with the waste of these fish. And I hope that you know, in moving forward with this issue that the government of Canada looks at these small Canadian farmers that are doing this already and, and just ask them what they need for their business to grow because they are the solution.
1: But wait, the, the the companies that are doing this in Canadian waters are Norwegian companies. And I know that you're a scientist, but also an activist. So I, I guess my question is like, that that sounds like there ought to be a law. Why are we letting them do that? These aren't even Canadian companies.
0: (laughs) I agree with you. Um, And I've been to court uh, five times with this industry and I've never lost. But it's very hard to get it to uh, comply because within DFO, the managers there were given an impossible mandate years ago, decades ago. They were told to both promote this industrial aquaculture and also protect wild salmon. But When it turned out that that was impossible to do both, the salmon farming industry is much more organized than the wild fisheries. And so the salmon farming aspect uh, in DFO got way more support and they are stronger. And they're simply making the rules easier and easier for this industry, which really, it didn't do it any good. It created a monster that nobody wants now. First Nations' governances are... Kicking this industry out over many areas of the coast, and so this is a you know huge threat to the industry itself. Wild salmon on the edge of extinction. A lot of it can be traced to these farms. So it's really a mess uh, right now with so much in the balance.
1: And, and you said it's a compliance issue. So that there, there actually are regulations. They're just not being followed.
0: Yes, there's more guidelines than regulations. But for example. We know, and the Norwegians know, (laughs) the Scottish know, that sea lice are a huge problem on these farms. And yet, on March 1st of 2020, senior DFO management told the farmers that they could have as many lice as they want for six weeks. They just have to get them under control after that 42-day period. Well, in six weeks, entire runs of juvenile salmon have been exposed to these farms because you know, they enter the salt water. right now, they're starting in March, and then they do this for the next three or four months. And they're streaming out to sea, they're trying to get out to the open ocean feeding grounds, and they have to go by these farms. And so to allow the farms to have as many lice as they want, or have to have uh, for six weeks, is devastating. There's no way that is working for anybody. And so what happened most recently is the, all the licenses in the Discovery Islands, so 19 federal salmon farm licenses, were set to expire on the 18th of December last year. And that triggered consultation with seven First Nations. And the First Nations said, no, we don't want these licenses renewed. Get these things out of here. And the minister, Minister Bernadette Jordan, did an extraordinary thing. She listened to them. <laughs> And so she told these three companies, uh, you can't put any more fish in these farms. You can finish growing the ones that are already there, but you can't put any more in. Well, the Norwegian companies sued Canada, and uh, we're going to court tomorrow, actually.
1: What you document, what you write about in your book is like pretty much like a a collapse of an ecosystem. These clouds of waste coming out of these salmon farms, the wild salmon, as you say, swimming through it, a collapse in the population of wild salmon— resulting in you write about starving grizzly bears deprived of the salmon that they rely on who then go and swim to places they've never been before breaking into people's homes then they get shot but then of course the entire ecosystem creates waste that then feeds into the trees that grow like the whole thing just falling apart because of these salmon farms it's harrowing to read about that but then i go online Google you and I, I find myself on cwestnews.com where I read the activists, including self-proclaimed independent biologist Alexandra Morton, who have been perpetuating the big lie that salmon farms in BC are responsible for dwindling wild stocks, despite voluminous science that shows it not to be true, have banded together as the conservation coalition. And so very quickly... That kind of really, really disturbing picture you paint of a collapsing ecosystem becomes kind of like a he said, she said politicized debate as per C-West News. What can you tell me about C-West News and about resistance like this? Basically, the resistance that you faced to just like tell people what you're telling our listeners right now.
0: Yes. Well, C-West News is ridiculous. Uh, they, they do this to everybody. They've done it to DFO scientists and uh, everyone who has stood up to this industry. You know, they're obviously a, a salmon farm public relations effort. But if you go to the scientific journals and you look at the science that has measured the impact of the viruses, of the bacteria, of the sea lice, myself and others are being published in the top scientific journals of the world, including the Journal of Science. And then if you go into nature and you look at the condition of wild salmon stocks, that are exposed to these farms, well, the fish don't lie. I mean, they're just not there. And so this has been the most difficult part of this, is measuring the impact and not being able to communicate it properly to government because of media efforts like the C-West News. And that's why the decision by Minister Jordan was so astonishing, because finally somebody in government looked at the mountain of evidence and just said okay this industry is the emperor with no clothes it is not sustainable it is not feeding us and people don't want it here
1: with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca/canadaland to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis, we talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help Change Mental Health Care Care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca/canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Can you tell me the story of the of the pushback and and the intimidation that you faced?
0: One of the companies hired a bunch of boats that blacked out their window with black film and began to follow me everywhere. It was a combination of intimidating and ridiculous uh, because these guys were just so over the top.
1: Wait, you had a tail with tinted windows on the ocean? I did. Who were these guys?
0: Well, uh, it turns out they were a company called Black Cube.
1: Black Cube, like the Israeli security firm that tried to silence Harvey Weinstein's accusers, Black Cube?
0: That's the question. Uh, So they claim they're not that Black Cube. They're a different Black Cube. I I actually talked to one of their lawyers and I said, hey, look, deception is your tool. I I, I have no idea whether to believe you. But I've also had my bank account hacked, my emails hacked. Uh, So I I, I don't know what to say, except the name of the company is Black Cube. They were hired by one of the fish farm companies and they ran through a, a local security company. And they had three boats with blacked out windows. And it's quite a story because in the end, I had to assume they were also listening to us because of the things they picked up from conversations we had that they would repeat the next day. So yeah, it's was, it was pretty alarming.
1: We're, we're, we're having a laugh now, but reading about it, it doesn't sound very funny. You're not allowed onto the salmon farm, but there's nothing to stop you from picking up waste to, to test it for disease. And then... There's a boat following you with tinted windows you later find out filled with armed men who have incorporated as Black Cube in Canada and your email has been hacked. They're alone with you on the ocean.
0: I know, you know, I mean, in some, I can understand them being around the farms because this was the year after we, myself and First Nations had occupied, uh, two of the salmon farms for 280 days, which was quite a grueling experience as well. So I understand them wanting increased security around the farm, but they were following me everywhere. And they were coming up to my boat at the dock and local fishermen were chasing them away. And, uh, they were harassing people that they thought were me. So yeah, no, absolutely. It's frightening and, um, it's a peek into the mind of these companies and how they work. Instead of trying to figure out how to fit in, they just want to bully their way through this. And I guess what? They thought I was going to give up and go away if they did this. I, I, it was It was hard to understand, but uh, a local local media wrote about it and they interviewed the company Maui about it, and they admitted that they had hired these guys.
1: You have been publishing videos, publishing scientific papers. You just published a book. The other side has Sea west News, which purports to be journalism but is associated with the salmon farming industry. What else does the other side have? Because I I think that there is a big hearts and minds and public messaging aspect of this. And I have been getting tips for years that big salmon has infiltrated the British Columbia press and they're trying to convince people that it's not only an, a huge economic boon, but totally benign environmentally. What can you tell me about the propaganda efforts or, or the, the hearts and minds campaign of the industry?
0: Well, uh, years ago, the salmon farming industry hired the firm Hill & Knowlton, which is a media strategist uh, company that has been hired by, for example, China when they massacred their citizens at Tiananmen Square and uh, the Bush government used it during the Iraq war. It, it's, a, it's a company that is very, very good at turning public opinion uh, by selectively using whatever, the sort of facts. And so I would say that the, the salmon farming industry is extremely organized. They have deep pockets. They've hired lobbyists. They've hired very efficient uh, media strategists And when, you know, when anybody publishes anything against them, they go after those reporters. And I've gotten numerous reporters that have come to me and said, "Okay, where is the where is the backup information for this? Which I always have, because this industry has taken me to court as many times as I've taken them to court. And the first thing they always do is try to discredit the things that I've said. So (laughs) I definitely understand the situation now, and I'm very, very careful with what I say. But it's interesting, uh, broadcaster Rafe Mayer, also was a member of parliament, told me years ago, he said, Alex, your problem is (laughs) what's happening is unbelievable. And so no one believes it. And that has truly been the problem. The situation is so unbelievable that this kind of damage could happen, that a company would hire A black cube company to follow you around. That senior management and DFO would be so manipulative as to prevent this very important information getting to the ministers. It's unbelievable. And that's why I wrote the book, so that there'd be a record of what happened.
1: And you you write about this coast to coast. You went to speak on the East Coast as well, but you heard this in British Columbia. Bad things happen when you talk. The people who have lived in these communities and fish in these communities for a long time are afraid to speak. And I got to ask, like, what, what exactly are they afraid of?
0: Yes. Well, this was particularly prevalent on the East Coast. And what the fishermen were afraid of was that their boats are going to be vandalized. And so, you know, fishermen after fishermen said, yeah, I'll talk to you, but don't take my picture. Don't don't give my name. And they were devastated because of the impact of this industry, particularly the drugs that they use to kill sea lice were killing the lobster and these fishermen were absolutely convinced and they felt DFO was on the side of the industry and so you know a lot of them said I'm going to be the last fisherman in my family it was really tragic but the the air of fear uh, on the east coast was really alarming it's uh, not quite that fearful on this coast <laughs> well except that they <laughs> had these boats following me around so maybe it's the same.
1: I mean, we've already seen this in Canada, the, the, the cod fishery collapse. We, we've been through this before.
0: I know. And that was also the disregard of science. So there was a DFO scientist who told the Minister of Fisheries, you are catching these cod too soon. They're not spawning. Easy peasy. That was not a hard one to figure out. And he was told to be, be quiet. He was silenced and he came and visited me. His name is Dr. Ransom Myers. Um, He's unfortunately passed away, but he was getting into the salmon farm fight. And he said, Alex, DFO is a corrupt organization, which was shocking. This is a world renowned scientist, a professor at the Dalhousie University. And he was telling me this. Um, But I did a, you know, through the years, I began to use the Access to Information Act, and actually you can order the conversations that DFO are having with each other. You can order their emails. And so I learned an interesting thing, and that was that the people at the bottom of the level in DFO, the people who are in the streams and the rivers, who are getting wet, who are seeing the fish, well, they're seeing the same thing as me, and they were also very concerned. But then there's a senior management level that was filtering everything from these scientists and but field biologists and con- conservation and protection officers. And it just wasn't reaching the minister. And so the ministers come into this position. They have no idea what is going on. They're not going to believe me or really anybody, but their senior staff until December 17, 2020. When Minister Bernadette Jordan decided to side with the First Nations and said, OK, if you want these farms out, that's what we're going to do. I'm in an unprecedented situation for myself in the last 35 years. I'm in full support of my government right now for what they are doing. And I you know, seek to back them up with whatever I can, with whatever, whatever science or information or observations I have. You know, the, the, the industry's fighting back hard right now. And it's interesting. They entered court last week, uh, was the first hearing on the um, effort to try to overturn the minister's decision so they could put the fish back in the Discovery Islands. And the day before we started that lawsuit, they lost a lawsuit in Norway. And Norway said, hey, you guys got to reduce the number of fish in these farms because you got too many sea lice. It's too much impact on the wild fish. And the companies turned around and they sued the Norwegian government. These are Norwegian companies suing, suing the Norwegian government. And they lost And <laughs> on March 17th. And then they went into court the next day to sue the Canadian government to stop them from putting farm salmon into these pens. So this industry is now hinging on court decisions. Well, that's not a great business plan. They They really should... <laughs> see the writing on the wall and make some changes in their own, the way they operate and uh, and hope for forgiveness and, and be allowed to grow again.
1: I think for a lot of people, the idea of a scientist um, studying these things should be just sort of just absolutely above the fray of politics. But what's interesting in reading your account is that there really isn't such a clear line between the activism and the science because a lot of what you were doing was in order to collect samples. It seems like you kind of inhabit a space where both of those things are necessary to make the arguments that you're making.
0: Yes, they are necessary. And I think more and more scientists, given the state of our planet right now, understand that if you are the person who is measuring the impact and thus fully understand the ramifications and all the things that are gonna come from this, all the starvation and extinctions and poverty, and you know, economic impacts, if you fully understand that, you have to become active. It's, a, it's an incredibly uncomfortable thing, because the more you do it, the more you're branded, your colleagues will distance themselves, your funders will walk away, everybody walks away from you, because they, they don't want to be dragged down uh, with the stigma of activism. However, the act of standing on those farms for 280 days is the only thing that removed some of the farms from the most important parts of the wild salmon migration wave. And last spring, I went to uh, look at the juvenile salmon migrating past where those farms used to be. That was my 20th year of going there and looking at these fish. And Jesse, they were so beautiful. They, they were sparkly, silvery, blue. Their eyes were so jet black, it's like looking into another world. They were not covered with lice. They didn't have the gray film that comes over their eyes when they go near these farms. And I don't even know what is causing that, but it's very disturbing. These fish had responded immediately to the removal of these farms. And my heart, I felt something in my heart that I had never felt before. I was like, okay, what is this? It was like this sort of ringing sensation of just sheer joy that these fish had a chance. And uh, so, you know, it's all worth it for me. I'm in an unusual situation in that I'm not seeking tenure at a university. Um, I'm not trying to make a lot of money. I I did run for politics briefly this year, last year, but that is not my goal. And so I'm free to say whatever I see. And I'm very careful with funding because I don't want anybody to control my voice. Somebody has to be able to speak for these fish.
1: You've studied salmon farming all around the world and seen the circumstances under which it stops or it is amended to not be as destructive putting a wall up instead of a net. I, I still can't get over how simple that is, but you've seen that it is possible for this to go the right way. What makes things go the right way? Is it about winning in court? Is it about convincing governments to have the laws and then actually enforce them? Or, or I have to wonder, is it just about, like, I don't know, people like me. I, I don't consider myself an environmentalist, but I do like to eat food. And as soon as I kind of became vaguely aware of the distinction between wild salmon and farm salmon, I noticed that the cheap salmon I get that is not marked organic is super gross, is kind of a cloudy fiberglass light pink, has these gross bands of of fat. It feels fake. It feels like it was made in a laboratory or something. And then I see the photos of sea lice in the supermarket, and I retch a little, and I am now willing to spend more money on wild salmon. Is that ultimately where this gets settled is that when the message finally gets to the consumer, then the market demand for this cheap, gross salmon disappears, but I always then start to second guess whether the organic wild stuff I'm buying is in fact, you know, as labeled and better, or if I'm just getting ripped off because and, and thinking that I'm actually doing something good for the world in, in buying the more expensive stuff.
0: I I share your distrust. It's very hard to trust anybody at this point uh, on this subject. That's a good question, though. Uh, I've I've thought about this sort of endlessly. Uh, How do you stop this? And definitely the market would do it. But it is hard to reach everybody. And people eat products that are bad for us or taste poor everywhere. And so right now, the greatest hope are these local indigenous governments because they are recognized as federal governments in Canada. They are extremely local, and they do want wild salmon. And so the only farms that have been removed have been due to First Nations pressuring government and relentlessly to, to not renew the tenures and the licenses. And so, yes, the public has a huge role to play. And I hope everybody writes to Minister Jordan and says, thank you for your bravery and for giving our wild salmon a chance and thus our orca and the culture of First Nations, and the trees that make the oxygen we breathe, all of this is related to salmon. And so my my goal right now is to, I mean, I do work with First Nations, whether they pay me or not, I provide them information because they are the ones on the front line of so many environmental battles that are protecting life on Earth. And these are difficult battles. You'll see in my book, it, it is not easy to work with First Nations. There's a lot of hurt and pain and misunderstanding, but I believe their heart is true in this. And so they are our greatest hope right now.
1: By way of disclosure, I I take from that that some of them do pay you to kind of uh, help build the case uh, when they're trying to remove these salmon farms?
0: Yes. I am a contractor for the Nomgeese in Alert Bay, uh, working with them on their fish farm removal plan. So they have won the right to remove these farms uh, a few every year. And then the nations in the Discovery Islands, one of them paid me to review all of the material that DFO poured over them. But there's nations that don't talk to me. There's nations who are in agreements with these, this industry, who are uh, you know, under legal uh, constraints. But I still provide them with the information because I know they want wild salmon. Nobody was told when this industry comes in, you're going to lose your wild salmon. Nobody was told that. They were told they could have both and so i accept the misunderstanding is there and what i tell them is very uncomfortable information but it's true and so i i keep sharing the information
1: and what you're saying is extraordinary that the cases where the salmon farms have gone away it's it's first nations exerting their nation to nation rights and and i would imagine a benefit for for everyone but that gives them the power to do what is much harder for you to do
0: Oh, it's impossible for me to do. There's nothing I can do. I realize that now after 30-odd years. There is nothing I can do to stop this industry.
1: What First Nations have succeeded in that?
0: So the Namgis, the uh the Mamalilikala, uh, then the Zawadenik in Kinkum, they are actually suing the government to get rid of this industry. And then uh, the nations in the Discovery Islands were the Likwata, the Hamalko, the Tlamin and the Klahus, and the Komaks and so all of these nations it's hard for them to stand together on this there's all these territorial disputes and this issue brings that up but the nations in the Broughton for example decided they would drop their territorial disputes for the moment on this issue and stand united and boom that worked and so wild salmon are swimming through that archipelago now And they're going to survive, at least, to get to the ocean. What goes on beyond that, we don't know, but at least they have a fighting chance now.
1: And as best as science can determine when the salmon farms go away, the wild salmon stocks do come back?
0: Well, (laughs) this is the big experiment. So, for example, the Glendale River and the Broughton, the biggest pink salmon river, those fish are down to one-tenth of one percent, only 20 Fraser sockeye came back to some of the rivers like the Shuswap. So we've taken them down to a level they haven't been at since the glaciers receded from this coast. However, they are very resilient and there are wild salmon runs that are doing well on this coast, the ones that are not exposed to salmon farms. So, yeah, I, I, there's hope, but but we don't know. Extinction is a very scary thing. When you make something so fragile that anything can knock it out, you know, you're definitely playing with fire.
1: That is your Canada Land episode. Listen, not everybody pays any attention to the news or current affairs or journalism. You're one of the other people, and we need all of the small minority of people who consume news to, to pay somebody for news. If you listen to this show, I think you should be paying us. Uh, it starts at five bucks a month. It is so easy. Click on the link in the show notes or go to CanadaLand.com join. We want to show our appreciation, so we have a premium version of this show, and we have stuff that we want to send you. It's time, people. Go do it. Email me about this show at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. You can read tons of interesting articles there and listen to our other podcasts. Jeremy Kessler produced this episode. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it.